Well, thanks for that great worship time. You know, I'm definitely not a builder. I've built a few things in my life, but that's not one of my specialties for sure. Um, I have a hard time getting anything square. But I do know a few things about foundations that are pretty obvious, actually. I know that if you don't build something with a solid foundation, chances are, in the long term, it is not going to do very well, right? It just won't. I mean, it may look good for a little while, but ultimately, it's going to collapse on itself. And so we know that to be true about a foundation, but the other thing about a foundation is this. When it comes to this idea of a foundation and using it as an analogy, I think it's, it's dangerous because even though we know that Christ said we have to build our lives on a strong foundation, when it comes to thinking about foundations, the problem is we don't think about foundations. I mean, you never get invited like, hey, Bob and Sue invited us to their house. We're going to go over there tomorrow. And you go over to their house and you're walking up and you're like, wow, that's an impressive slab on grade that Bob has there in the house. You know, that's a, an impressive looking foundation. Don't you think so, Sue? And she's like, I've never noticed, but you're right. It, it, it looks a lot better than our pier and beam. And, and, and Bob comes out and you're like, Bob, I, I love the foundation. It's great. I mean, the house looks so stable. I mean, has that ever happened in your life? All right, if it's happened, you probably are, you know, like a, a tool geek or something. All right, so you probably, that's never happened for anyone. So I, I, here's a couple of observations spiritually. We take foundations for granted, right? We, we just think, oh, it's there, move on. And here's the danger when it comes to happiness. The talk that we did last week about joy and happiness and the foundation having to be upon the gospel, we can't say, that's checked off my list now, now I can move on to better things. We can't forget about the foundation. In fact, we have to think about the foundation constantly if we're going to achieve happiness and have happiness in Christ. And so we can't allow the foundation not to be always in our mind, always in front of us. And then the other thing is, the talk that we're going to do today is extremely, honestly, I'm not just saying this, extremely dangerous if your foundation isn't Jesus Christ. Because this is going to sound like work and effort and all on you. And nothing can be further from the truth, but if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, you have no chance for your structure to hold up. And Christian, if you're not constantly revisiting the foundation in your life, you're going to be burnt out, exhausted, and ultimately give up on this whole idea of sanctification becoming more and more like Christ. And so today we're going to talk about radical measures needed in your life and in my life in order to maximize our joy and our happiness in Jesus Christ. Radical measures that are needed. And so the foundation on the gospel has to be the focus, revisiting it again over and over and over. And so today's message is going to build on that foundation we talked about last week. If you weren't here last week, if you missed that sermon, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. My Monday email from last week kind of walked through that because it's so important that we do that. Because as someone who grew up in a toxic church culture, and what do I mean by that? Uh, I mean, use a term that some of you may not be familiar with. It's called legalism. And basically, it's the idea that our works, our efforts make God happier or, or we find more favor with him. He's more accepting of us because of the things that we do. And the gospel couldn't be any further than that. 
And I think the churches I grew up in were aware of that, the fact that, and, and they taught clearly that we didn't come to Christ through our efforts, through our works. But the problem was that it was looked at as our justification or our salvation was a gift from God, and then after that, it was all on us. I mean, and, and all these extra biblical rules were added to this, and so if you met these rules or did these things, then you were growing spiritually, but they were all effort-based. And so I like to think of it this way, that you know, our, our, our justification felt like good news. When Jesus offered us salvation and it's all on him, well, that felt like good news, but then all of a sudden growing in Christ felt like punishment, honestly. It felt like now it's just up to me to labor and to do it. It's all on me to become like Jesus. And that's not the gospel of grace. And so if you apply what I'm talking about today without the foundation of grace, again, you'll turn into a very miserable person who will ultimately give up because you can't do it, or you'll become very legalistic and you'll begin to judge other people whether they measure up to your standard of righteousness or not. Uh, you know, the Smiths, they don't come to church but once a month. They're not as good as Christian as we are because we come four or five times a month. And so we begin to measure people according to our standard of holiness, or even it could be something biblical, but we want to play the Holy Spirit in their lives rather than focusing on us. Sorry, Michael, that wasn't directed toward you. All right. Uh, and so... Um, uh, and so as today, as we look at Philippians again about happiness, it's critical, critical that you have your foundation built upon Jesus Christ, or otherwise this is going to be all law and no grace. So Philippians chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 4 and 9, kind of our jumping off point to chapter 2, verses 12 through 16. And I encourage you, if you uh, to use the app because there's bonus content there. There's also fill in the blanks for those who have a hard time focusing in on the sermon. And there's also uh, some extra resources, like I said, that I provided for you. So Philippians 4, 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice in the Lord always. That's a command. And he says it again. Again, I say rejoice. And then we skip down to verse 9. Paul writes this to the church there at Philippi. He says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, he says, practice these things. Practice these things, and the peace of God will be with you. And then turn back to Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 12 through 13, and then we'll look at the rest of the passage at the end. Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have obeyed, so now, not only in my presence but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let's pray and we'll look at this passage. Father God, I pray that each believer in here now will just reflect upon the amazing salvation that they have in Jesus. And God, I pray that you allow the words today to just stir them up through the power of the Holy Spirit. God, point out the apathy, the sloth, the, just the, the, the unwillingness to really take effort, make effort in our lives to pursue you. And God, please work in our lives. For the person here or people here who don't have a foundation on Jesus Christ, they don't know Jesus as their Savior and Lord, may today be the day that they lay that foundation and build upon that foundation. 
We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. As a kid, that verse scared me to death, all right? It, it did. It was preached really hard at youth conferences or revivals, and it was one of those verses where you could get people down the front at the aisle praying the prayer, and we were told, uh, you know, if you're not working out your salvation, you need to pray the prayer. You need to pray and ask God to save you. Maybe you thought you did, but maybe you didn't really mean it. And the whole nine yards that were given to us there to make us like really, really question our salvation based upon oftentimes guilt. Well, let's walk through and talk about what this church, this verse really means. Paul's overarching argument in this book of Philippians is that the believers would conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Conduct yourself in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. And if you look back at verse 12 again, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have obeyed, so now not as only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. So he's challenging them to live out the implications of their initial response to the gospel. They came to Christ. They put their faith in Christ. Now live that out and do so whether I'm there with you, Paul says, or whether I'm not there with you. All right, you need to work this out on your own with fear and trembling. Don't rely upon me. You have the Holy Spirit. You, God has given you everything you need for godliness. Now work this out. And if this verse was all that we had from the Apostle Paul when it came to salvation, all of us would arrive at the conclusion that we need to work for our salvation. Right? If you just take this little sliver of passage here and just read it on its own, it seems very much like you need to make some effort to add to your salvation so God accepts you. But as we talked about again last week in the foundation of Romans chapter 5, and as we think about Paul's writings in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, it's by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not by works, lest you boast or brag or think you've accomplished something. And, and I could cite numerous passages. We could spend an hour here looking at passages where Paul talks about that it's not human effort, we can't even cooperate with God when it comes to salvation, that God gives us right standing in his sight because of what Jesus did on the cross, and our job is just to believe, put our faith in, in him, and even that is a gift from him. We talked about that last week. So what this verse is saying is that we work out our salvation that's been given to us by grace through faith in Christ, and your works prove that your faith is real. It's very much what James says, if you're familiar with the book of James, that the very nature of true faith is a works thing. It, it, faith, just real faith works. It does work. And so we work out this gift that's been given to us with fear and trembling. So there's this tension in Scripture, throughout Scripture, that the fact that, hey, you're the elect of God. God has given you salvation but now you work and show that you're, you are saved by your works because the nature of your actions show that your faith is real. Let me give you a couple of examples from Jesus Christ himself. Jesus said, on one hand, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Nobody comes to God unless the Father draws him. But on the same line, he said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So you have the Salvation, the election side of it, nobody comes unless the Father initiates it, but now you keep my commandments if you love me. So you see the tension there. Also, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So the follow me is the evidence. You have the salvation, God's initiation of salvation, then the evidence of that. And 
Here's the problem. So many times that we fail to remember that Jesus himself gave multiple parables on the fact that there's always going to be what he called goats among the sheep or weeds among the, uh, the wheat. And these were parables to show that in a community, in a church, in the church at large and in the local church, there's always going to be people who are not truly believers. And the visible church is going to have this mix of people who true believers, but some who are not really believers. And what distinguishes true believers from others is that their God-given faith is demonstrated by God-dependent work. Their God-given faith is demonstrated by God-dependent work. That's by John Bloom. I got that quote from him. Great quote. So, our works do not in any way, shape, or form contribute to our salvation, but they're evidence of God's saving work in us. And so when we read verses like verses 12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, that's a call to seriousness in our pursuit of Jesus and sanctification, becoming more and more like him. And it's a healthy fear that we offend God through our disobedience. It's a healthy fear of offending God through our disobedience. So fear and trembling is a commitment to the gospel in a way that demonstrates that we are genuine believers. Let me say that again. I think it's on the screen. Yep. Fear and trembling is a commitment to the gospel in a way that demonstrates that we are genuine believers. Grounded in grace. Grounded in God's gift. Not motivated by guilt, but by grace. Not driven by this unhealthy fear of God, but this, this healthy, we talked about a few weeks ago in Timothy, this healthy fear of God. And not only when you fail God, can you experience a joy? But in our successes, we can experience joy. Both of these cases, we can experience joy because we know that in Christ, God is for us. He's not against us. And so our joy is maximized as we realize this truth. So this isn't just sitting back and letting go and letting God. Scripture constantly tells us that we need to work out our salvation or something of that extent. But what I love here in this context of this passage is Paul perhaps recognizes the tendency, the danger that some might have to take his statement to mean that we cooperate with God in the process of our salvation. And so he turns around and he writes verse 13 to give us really the, the truth of it all. He says, look at verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's God who works in you both to will, give you the will, and the work for his good pleasure. So Paul explains that salvation is entirely of God's initiative, and God provides both the will and the ability to accomplish what pleases him and makes him happy. That should be the bigger question than our happiness is, does it make God happy? And so, Grace Church, we cannot be afraid of striving, fighting, and working for our happiness and our holiness. And these things are not opposed to one another. In fact, I think we've set up this false dichotomy in churches, and I've said it too. God would rather you be holy, you've heard it, than what? Happy. And, and, and I think that's probably was said by good meanings, and, and for me it was when I've said that, because I was taking the world's definition of happiness, which is very superficial, which is, we talked about, you know, it comes with a lot of baggage. We spent a lot of time on that last week. But the truth is that God's version of happiness, God's version of what he desires for his children, is not a drudgery. 
Holiness isn't a drudgery. It's, it's, it's who we are. It's our DNA. It's the Holy Spirit bursting out of us. And so we become more and more like Jesus. Is, is this natural? You know, people do this to my kids all the time. Sorry, it's really embarrassing for them when this happens. But they say, you know, you look just like your dad. And, you know, I don't scratch my head and say, what would that be? What, why do they look like me? That's so, so mysterious, right? No, it's, it's very natural. Like, they're from me, and so they're going to look like Michelle or I or a combination of the both. The same is true for a true believer. You are going to resemble Christ more and more. God is at work within you. He's the one working. And Philippians, he who began a good work in you will complete it. So you shouldn't be surprised if you feel tension in your life when you're sinning, when you're running the other direction, because the Holy Spirit is beating up on you saying, be who you really are in Christ. Don't run from this. I'm conforming you to my image, the image of Jesus Christ. And we sang a lot of songs about the Holy Spirit today, and that's the Spirit working in you to make you more like Jesus. And so happiness, holiness are not at odds. Let's go to the definition of happiness, which we saw in Randy Alcorn's book last week. It says, true happiness, the kind God wants for us, is not a pasting on of a false smile in the midst of heartache. It's discovering a reasonable, attainable delight in Christ that transcends difficult circumstances. It's a reasonable, attainable delight in Jesus that's going to transcend any of the circumstances that you go through. And so I I quoted this a lot last week. I also uh, am going to quote it again today. But this is a a little 60-day journal. It's kind of an abridged book of the entire book. Uh, And and it's a great little thing to read each morning. And I'd just like to give this away just kind of because it's such good stuff. And I want to just kind of promote the book because a lot of the content that I come up with during the sermon was grounded and founded on his, uh, what he wrote in the scripture passages he looked to. And so I'd like to just like to give this away to somebody, uh, just random, just pick a random birthday here, right? October 30th. Whose birthday is October 30th? Oh, wow, right there. All right. Come on up here. Got to walk up. You're welcome. I'll start to say October 31st, but nobody wants to admit their birthday's on Halloween, right? Reformation Day, though, right? That's good. And so let me give you another quote from from, uh, Randy Alcorn here. Anyone who waits for happiness will never be happy. Happiness escapes us until we understand why we should be happy, change our perspective, and develop habits of happiness. We develop habits of of happiness. And so I want to remove this idea again that holiness is a drudgery. Holy, pursuing holiness should be a natural reaction for the believer. So let's read verse 12 and 13 together, just again, to, to, to just really let this soak in on us. Therefore, my beloved, as you have obeyed, not so, so now, not so as in my presence, but also much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. 
And so God is working, but we work as well. God is working, he's doing it, but we have to take steps of obedience. We like to say long obedience in the same direction. Long obedience and developing new habits, as Randy Alcorn points out. Habits of the faith that take effort, that take work, that take discipline, but those are all good words for someone who's working out of a place of grace, out of the gospel. They're terrible concepts for someone who says, I can do this. I can make the effort. I can make it happen, and God's going to be so happy with me for doing it. You're missing that salvation is a gift of grace from God, and you're not building upon the foundation of grace. So as we talk about developing habits, these are very practical things that you can implement in your life. I mean, habits are things that just you can instill 20 days or 25 days later, and it becomes something that just becomes part of you. And you, and you start to develop this and do it every single day. I mean, it, it's silly how the human body works and how our mind works on this stuff. Really, honestly, I read a book. It's a secular book called Habits a few years ago. Anybody read that book? By the way, it's a yellow book. It's a good book. Yeah, one person. Um, the book Habits, how to develop new and good habits in your life. And, and just real practical things like if every day in your office at 3 o'clock you get kind of uh, an urge for hunger. I used to do this, and I go down to the, the cafeteria in the school, and I buy a bag of that cheddar popcorn, and I would take it up to my office, and I would eat that cheddar popcorn. And, and every day about 3, man, my mind would just be like, ah, cheddar popcorn, I want cheddar popcorn, I want cheddar popcorn. And it wouldn't go away. But you begin to develop new habits, and so I, I replaced that with something good, which was, I drank a cup of coffee, which has zero calories, no cream or anything. And so instead of going for the cheddar popcorn, I started just drinking a cup of coffee about that time of day. And at that point in my life, this was a few years ago, I just lost my desire for the cheddar popcorn because I felt guilty when I ate the cheddar popcorn. But I developed a habit of drinking the coffee, and it made me feel good. And so these are really practical things that you can do to, to discipline yourself. Don't be afraid of the concept of discipline. It's part of what God has given us in order to become more like Jesus. Look at 1 Corinthians. I think this is on the screen. It's in your app. 1 Corinthians 9, 27. Paul writes this. He says, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. I myself should be disqualified. And so God has created so many good things in this world. And we talked about this at the end of Timothy. Things for our enjoyment and our pleasure. He's given us these things, but our tendency is what do we do? Immediately, like we do these good things or indulge in these good things, and pretty soon the good thing, the created thing, becomes more important than the creator, and it becomes an idol. And we run to those idols to meet our needs, and they always fail us. And mostly things like uh, food or sex or those type of things, you know, some of you know, you can get so addicted and called up into these things that begin your life begins to be just controlled by these, these good things that God gave us, which all of a sudden now they've turned into this cycle of just guilt and addiction and frustration. And God wants us to use the discipline of the Word through, through His Word, His strength, the Holy Spirit, in order to master our physical desires, not to be servants of them. He wants us to master our physical desires, not be servants of them. So God is at work in us, and the Holy Spirit stirs us up. We hear the Word of God. We respond to the Word of God. We implement true action in our life, and we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, utter seriousness. And I wish, honestly, I wish I would have heard this message 30 years ago. Because growing up in the legalistic circles that I grew up in, 
Like, if I had heard this, I would have been like, oh, I don't think I can do it. Those sins that have been following me around forever, I just can't do that. I mean, I can't get victory. And I keep hearing, you know, to have a daily quiet time, and, and, and I'm such a failure. And even the days when I do wake up to read, I'm just like not even there, and I'm just, just staring at the page and fall back to sleep half the time. And all I fe- heard was just guilt. And then I'd hear verses like fear and trembling. And I'm like, oh, man, I, just, I, I, I know, God, I'm, I'm just disappointing you. I, I'm so lazy and apathetic, and I'm not serious, and I have none of these things in my life. And I begin to doubt my salvation and question whether you know I'm really in Christ or not and this was so far from gospel driven grace driven effort because it was all on me it was guilt frustration and these cycles of just habitual just addicted to things that give me short-term pleasure but never gave me lasting pleasure and God offers his children happiness through holiness happiness through holiness Working out our salvation with fear and trembling. Making effort. Pursuing. And I want us to think about just some gospel-driven efforts that we can do in our life. And I I put an image up here for you. Gospel-driven efforts of things that are are, are great, that should be part of our lives. But yet, so many times, I personally have strayed away from really pushing this because, oh, I don't want people to think it's all effort and all works. But Scripture always gives us that tension that we work because God is working within us. And so I, I think about like the first one, a radical call to discipleship on the top right there. A radical call to discipleship. Here's the thing. Few of you are in discipling relationships. And it's easy to go and it's easy to hide in a K group. And I, and I hope you're in a K group. You need to be in a K group. That's really the first step after worship that you need to be involved in. But you need to have someone in your life or a couple guys or a couple ladies in your life who are going to be real with you with gospel issues. You do. The book, I mentioned this a few weeks ago, a book that our staff is reading together, Dangerous Calling. It's a book primarily for pastors, people in ministry. And it's just to encourage us to be diligent about the things that God has called us to. You, you can go, that's not the book, so you can go back to the other side or go back on me. Um, to, to, to really truly be aware of the tendency we all have, and those of us in ministry are not above it, that it's so easy to just go through the motions. So easy just to begin to do the stuff and lose the heart for Jesus. And one of the things that he just really, really handled in one chapter was, you need somebody in your life who's going to pastor you, pastors. Somebody who you can just lay it out there and be real and truthful and not hide. And I, had a, I have a guy, and I've, I've mentioned him many times, Jeff Oldham. And Jeff and I have a really great relationship. I mean, honestly, there's nothing in the world I could not tell Jeff Oldham. But he lives in Lubbock, Texas. I live in Bainbridge. It's a long way away. And you can have good intentions about getting together, talking on the phone, and those kind of things. But the truth is, we found it was slipping more and more further and further apart. Well, I challenged the guys and myself in staff meeting. I said, we need somebody who we're talking to on a consistent basis for discipleship. I said, I'm going to hold you accountable to this, and you hold me accountable. And so Jeff and I literally have it on our calendars every other week on Tuesday at 11 o'clock, for one hour, we have it blocked off where we can spend time talking and praying for one another. That's not just for pastors. 
because we're not the only ones who are called to be a light to this world and to glorify God and live for Him. Every single believer in here has the Holy Spirit just like I do, just like Jeremy and Mitch and Roy, and you need it as well. Gospel-driven discipleship. I, I, here's the book that was put up there, if they want to put it back up again. Here, here I'm going to help you out, okay? I, I really, those of you who are maybe, you're hesitant for discipleship, this is a little book, and I give it away to our new members class, and so some of you have this already. It's super little, so guys, don't have to be intimidated by the size of this book. It's pretty simple to read. It's eight weeks, and here's what I would challenge you to do. I'm going to challenge you if you've never been discipled, never been had somebody take you by the hand and walk you through what it means to follow Jesus. And you may know a lot of stuff already. You may. You may know a lot. But you've never been systematically discipled and built that relationship with someone. And I'm not saying you have to walk in like Jeff Oldham and I and just like spill your guts. That's not what I'm talking about here. It's starting a relationship with someone who's going to begin to help you follow Jesus, somebody who's imperfect. And so it's eight weeks, and here's what I want you to do. I want some of you to really consider committing to eight weeks. And I need disciplers as well as people step up, guys, elders, deacons, people who are in leadership here. I need you to be willing to walk with somebody for eight weeks. You can, you can commit to eight weeks. You can read this book, I promise you. All right? You can get together each week and talk about it. And what this might do is it might lead in, may or may not lead into the, some of these other areas that I'm mentioning here. Accountability. Um, talking about just memorizing the Word. We have one of our fight clubs, we memorize Scripture together. In, the, in the, this last year, we memorized Ephesians chapter 1 together. And so you, you bring these spiritual disciplines into your life, you begin to hold each other accountable, and it becomes real. And it's not just something you go and sit on Sunday morning and, and take part in. It, it's part of your life, but it takes effort. It takes discipline, and it, tell, it takes self-denial. And those are not things that our society promotes, is it? So Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This is a call to, to effort. This is a call to self-discipline. This is a call to begin to put some things in your life like fasting, consistent prayer life, consistent in the Word, and do whatever it takes, gospel-centered power, to make that happen in your life. Because I, I, too long, I myself have been guilty of, oh, you know, just work at your pace. But when I read this passage, I see Paul saying, look, your, your, your life depends upon this. That your, your testimony for Jesus depends upon this. And it's a denial of the work that Christ is doing in you if you're not growing in your relationship with Him. If you're not becoming more and more like Jesus. And so it's a call to radical measures. Radical measures. And again, I don't think I can say this enough. Every strategy you employ for happiness has to be grounded upon the grace of God in Christ. If it's going to be sturdy, if it's going to be durable, we say this in Fight Club. We say, for every one look at your sin, take ten looks at Jesus, all right? It's a very practical way of going back to the gospel. For every time you say, you know, Joe, let me tell you what happened this week in, in, our, in my life. Man, I really, I really sinned. I really messed up. We're going to look ten times at Jesus because it can become so easy to turn that into behavior modification. Oh, let me hold you accountable. If you do that, 
next week then, um, you know, this will happen or, I'll, you know, I'm going to be mad at you. And, and it can just become just I'm changing for this person or I'm changing because I got called out on it. But we look to Jesus, we look to the gospel, and in that we find the ultimate motivation to live for him. And so, again, your righteousness is not earned or lost based on what you do or what you don't do. It's driven out of our love for Jesus, out of grace. And then go to verse 14. We're going to quickly walk through the rest of the Scripture. He says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Think about that for a second. Why do he say that? Do all things without grumbling and disputing. He just went from work out your salvation, and then he says, do all these things without grumbling and disputing. Because Philippians, he's building this case that happiness is built on Jesus. And if there's anything that's the opposite of happiness, listen to me, it's grumbling and fighting and arguing. And some of us have become, grumbling has become so much part of our DNA that we naturally grumble when our food's not the right temperature, when people don't do things exactly that we want them to, if this or that in our household isn't folded just right. I mean, we've become very people who, who demand a certain thing in our lives, and if we don't get it, we're going to make a big deal about it. And that's not that should not be typical of a Christ follower. That's not who a Christ follower should be, and you're not a happy person if that's indicative of your life. And so don't complain about this. Don't complain about the effort that he's saying. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Well, I'm going to do it. I'm going to work it out, but I'm sure going to grumble along the way as I'm doing it. Like, oh, I got my alarm off 30 minutes early. Oh, man, I wish I, you know, I wish I didn't have to do this. I know it's good for me. I'm going to do it. That's, it becomes a drudgery, not a delight when we grumble and we complain. So he says, do all things without grumbling or, or disputing. Verse 15, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. We can say amen to that, right? But here's the deal. Do we just complain because it's twisted and it's crooked, or do we shine as lights in the world? Are we the light to this crooked and messed up generation? You see, so many times we want to sit back and complain and, and, and tell, say how awful it is, and God says, I want you to be the light. I want you to point people to Jesus. Don't repoint them to this policy or that person. Point them to me. Point them to Jesus. That's what a light does. He says, look at verse 16, holding fast to the word of life. That's Jesus. I'm holding fast to him so that in the day of Christ, that's the judgment seat of Christ, when we give an account for our ministries, I may be proud of what I did and I didn't run in vain or labor in vain. Think about those words for a second. Labor is easy, right? Labor. You labor in vain. He says you can do your life in a way that's in vain. You can live this Christian life in a way that's in vain because you've not held out fast to the word of life. You've not lifted up the word of life. You've not lived in a way that's indicative of somebody who's shining a light, who's just, who's just, just brilliant for people to see the light of Jesus and just fluorescent for them to, to notice Jesus in your life. Instead, you complain and you murmur and you grumble and you don't point people to Jesus. But Paul says, so I, on that day of Christ, the judgment seat where I give an account of my ministry, I'm going to be proud that these labors were not in vain. And running, he uses that analogy a lot. And those of us who run, we know it's strenuous and it's hard and it's difficult. So please hear me today. 
Becoming like Jesus takes discipline, effort, and work. But the really awesome thing is that if you have the Holy Spirit, God is working in you and through you for His good pleasure. And if you can just say, never had a quiet time, try that before, don't really care, really didn't get anything out of it anyway, I would say that's a problem. Because I think somebody who has the Holy Spirit in them would love to begin to meet with their Creator and just build this love relationship that's real and it's personal. Because that's who you are now. You've been removed from the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of light. The old has passed away, the new has begun. I'm no longer a slave to sin, but I'm what? I'm a child of the king. And what that looks like in your life may look different from one person to the other, but there has to be this desire to be with Jesus, to spend time with him. And so my call as the preacher of the word today is this. Respond. Respond in effort. Gospel-driven effort. Respond with gospel-driven discipline. Begin to put into place the things in your life that will cultivate your relationship with Jesus. And you can't do it alone. You need your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not because it's a man-made thing that they're going to just push you along. But God created us for community. He did. And we're going to talk about that next week. He created us for community. He told us to sharpen each other and build each other, confess our sins to one another. All these things are in Scripture as commands, but most of the time we just ignore these things because they're uncomfortable. But He gave them to us for our happiness. So our holiness and our happiness go hand in hand. So, back again to our application. Our head today, here's the takeaway. Happiness and holiness take work. Bottom line, happiness and holiness take work. It's gospel-driven effort. Gospel-driven effort. And if you're, again, I spent the first 10 minutes warning you and warning you, if it's all, if you walk out of here and you're like this and you're like, oh, it's going to be so hard, it's going to be so difficult, and I, I just can't do these things, and it, it's, it seems impossible, well, you're falling into the category right away of grumbling, and then also, you're failing to see the very next verse, work out with fear and trembling, but it's God who works in you for His pleasure, His delight. And so as you do these things, He's delighted and you're delighted, and He gets the glory and you shine as a light. And so happiness and holiness take work. And then the heart today, what controls the heart directs the life. We know that. What, what controls the heart directs the life. The life. And so if you know your heart is being given to idols, they direct your life. I mean, it's common sense, right? If, if your whole goal in life is to get on, on the river, 
all right? And that's all you think about is getting on the river because that's where your heart is. It directs your life, right? You're like, oh, man, I can't wait to get out on the river. I can't wait till this month rolls around till April and it's warm enough that I can get on the river. And your whole life revolves around this one thing, whatever it is. And so what rules the heart directs the life. You spend your money on it. You spend your time on it. You spend your energy on it. You spend your thoughts on it. So this is a time to really analyze and look at and ask the Holy Spirit, what's controlling my heart? Honestly, what's controlling my heart? And I love the fact that God told us together on a regular basis that we pause, we slow down, and we take the Lord's Supper together. Because it's such a built-in time of reflection and allowing the Holy Spirit just to speak to us and putting aside the clutter of life and even the tone of my voice for a few minutes and to allow the Spirit to work in you. And Jesus said this. He said, some of you know this passage of Scripture. Listen to it. When he was talking to his disciples, this was a large group of disciples, people who were following him, and he said, if you're going to follow me, you have to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. Some are like, what? What is that about? Eat of my flesh and drink of my blood? And it said after that, many people deserted him or abandoned him. And look, he wasn't saying cannibalism and, and th- these elements don't turn into the actual body and blood of Jesus today. They don't do that. That's not what he's talking about here. What he's saying is, are you with me or not? Are you a partake- partaker in me, in my life, in my death? In my resurrection, is Jesus saying, is, am I central in your life? And some of these guys who are casual followers, who are there because Jesus was doing some cool stuff and healing people and telling great stories, and they like abandon, like, oh, it's too much for us, we're out of here. And there's some people here today, I know it, who in your mind right now, Satan's saying, this is not what I signed up for. It's Satan's saying, you can't do this. This is crazy. Just have enough Jesus to get you to heaven, but don't, don't take this too seriously, all right? Just, Pastor John's just a little bit out of control. You know, he's just a preacher thing. This is what they do, but not for you. You're okay. You're doing good. If you're hearing that in your head today, that's not the Holy Spirit. God is saying your whole purpose in life is to lift up Jesus. You no longer live but Christ lives in you, Galatians 2.20. The life that you're living in your body that's sitting in that seat right now, you're to live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. That's what you've been called to do. So if Satan's saying, you need to do a serious heart check. Well, if you've been here before, you know we do the head, the heart, and the hands. And the hands are so many options today, but... I want to just reread that statement I said to you earlier. God wants us to be the master of our physical desires, not the servant of them. And I found that fasting is one way that helps us to do that. It doesn't earn us favor or credit with God. He doesn't say, wow, I love you more because you're fasting and giving up stuff. But throughout Scripture, it's assumed that we'll fast. Jesus said when you fast. He didn't say if you fast. He said when you fast. And we typically haven't made a big deal about Lent here in this church, but some of you know you're from traditions that celebrated Lent, and Lent starts on the 17th, 
And one thing, this could be like Lent light, okay, for some of you who are kind of easing into Lent. We've uh, promoted this water project, and if you guys would put that, that slide up on the screen, we're, we're going to be doing this HBO, H, HBO, H2O project um, on February 15th through 24th, and it's through this organization called Living Water International. And basically, the concept's really simple. You give up uh, everything but water, not food, but give up all your drinks except water, and anything that you would spend on those drinks at Coke or that sparkling water or whatever it is, you collect that money, you keep that money. And so it's kind of like you're accomplishing two things at once. You're getting the benefit of the fast. And so you have time where you're really depending upon God more conscientiously. Wow, I really want that Coke. And I have to be conscientious. Okay, I'm going to not do that. And then you're doing something great for this organization that this is their mission statement. I love the, the middle one. Strengthening churches' capacity to thrive, collaborate, and carry out integral mission physical and spiritual ministry for the long term. Oh, I'm, I meant the one above it, actually. Working alongside communities to implementing lasting water solutions, sanitation, hygiene services, large or small scale, rural or urban, while bearing witness to Jesus Christ in word or deed. And so they go into villages, they build wells. In fact, our youth ministry used to do this a lot. Josh, you remember that? Lots of times, Josh Carnes, part of that, really loved doing that. And and one thing we did when you're the youth ministry raised, the youth ministry raised like $3,500, and they sent us a picture of this well in Haiti and said, your money built half of this well. And I thought that was so awesome that we could actually tangibly see this well, and they told us what community it was in. And so I'm going to encourage you maybe to, as you're doing Lent or thinking about this this year, that this would be part of this. And I'll give you detail specifics and when we're going to collect and all those things in an email tomorrow, but maybe you'll take a part of this. So, so many applications. We got the, uh, also the, the discipleship, eight weeks. Maybe some of you need to do that ASAP. Lots of hands opportunities. Do something. God called us to work out our salvation. Discipline ourselves. Run the race. Pursue the prize. Don't be passive. Father God, we thank you for Jesus. And we thank you that through him and through the Holy Spirit that's been given to us, that we will begin to live out our identity with the passion and the vigor and the discipline that you've given us the ability to do. God, help us. As, as 2 Peter 1 says, we've been given everything needed for life and godliness. And then you say, now get busy, get to work, adding to your salvation. And God, I pray that we will not be scared of these concepts, but realize that these all flow out of grace for our happiness for our pleasure, and for our holiness. And God, I pray we'll be a church that's holy, that holiness is such a, a quality that's seen here that people recognize it immediately. And God, may we be a happy church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.